last week when we were in, in chapter 12, we saw the Lord do such a great work. And, you know, Nehemiah had finished the walls. Uh, God had, you know, they had built the temple, restored temple worship. They had entered into a covenant and a commitment to God to live their life for him. And they did this, you know, huge celebration in which they marched on the walls. And it was just such an awesome awesome time together. Um, we're not really 100% sure on the time frame, but we know according to Nehemiah chapter 5 that he was governor there for 12 years. And so uh, somewhere in that, what had happened was he went back to Persia, and when he left Jerusalem, when he left this great work, the people, um, man, they went back to their old ways. Uh, you know, like the Bible says, all we like sheep, we've gone astray. We have an inclination to go the wrong direction. It's kind of like a fire, you know. Uh, you guys light a fire. That fire needs to be tended, right? I mean, it needs to be paid attention to. You got to put wood in there. Um, you got to stir it up. You got to make sure it has everything it needs to continue to burn. Well, you guys, it's the same truth for us. You know, when the Lord gets a hold of our life and prayerfully, man, we catch fire. We are on fire for God. Uh, the natural inclination left untended to is that fire will die, it will fade, it will weaken unless it's fed what it's need to be fed, unless it's led in one sense that we see that in Nehemiah, the way that we're supposed to be led. And so what had happened was when Nehemiah left, everything went downhill. Uh, next thing you know, we find that they're in big trouble. And so we picked that up here in Nehemiah 13, and we're going to see some principles, I think, that stand out for us, even as Christians, looking at an Old Testament reality. Because look what we read in Nehemiah 13. It says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God, because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. And so it was when they had heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. You know, one of the principles we see here right off, off the bat, we're going to see it later because they started getting into marriages they didn't belong in, is that they needed to, we as God's people, need to make sure we have a healthy separation from the influence of the world. You know, and what we find right here is that the, the word of God was clear. It says there in verse 1 that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God. You know, sadly, what had happened was after Nehemiah left, they blatantly disobeyed God's clear command. Something you can read in Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. It says, an Ammonite, Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. And so he gave the reason in the very next verse, Deuteronomy 23, 4, because they didn't meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. And so, you see, the Lord gave them clear commands that you guys are not to allow these types of people into your congregation, into your life, because they didn't help you when you needed help. As a matter of fact, they intended to curse you. They wanted to thrash your life. They wanted to mess you up. They wanted to get you off track. 
And so God said, I love you, and you got to be careful. The Bible says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, that he shall reap. Don't be deceived. Evil company, the Bible says, corrupt goods, corrupts good habits. And so what had happened right here was they had violated that. They had allowed the Ammonite, the Moabite, into the assembly of God. You know, when you read this whole account here in verse 2, it talks about Balaam. And you guys remember that story? Wasn't it crazy how uh, the donkey spoke? You know, kind of like pastors nowadays, you know? <laughs> That's all we are, you know? God can speak through a donkey. God can, you know, deliver like he did with Samson through the jawbone of a donkey, man. So we're nothing. God can speak through a donkey, right? That's what he did with Balaam. And what had happened was, it's crazy, you know, Balak uh, hired him. He said, I want you to come and curse the, the people of Israel. Very mysterious prophet when you see this guy. I guess apparently a lot of things that he shared were, were real, right? And so he goes up three times. He tries to curse Israel, but he can't. He can't, right? Because whomever the Lord has blessed cannot be cursed. Praise God for his grace and that they were not allowed to be cursed. We read in Deuteronomy 23, verse 5, Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. I like in Joshua 24, verse 10, he says, But I would not listen to Balaam, therefore he continued to bless you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And that's just good to know if you're a Christian. Okay, if you're a Christian and someone says, Hey, I'm going to, you know, whatever, you know, um, cast a curse on you, Santeria, some uh, voodoo doll or something. You know, people start freaking out, sweating bullets over that. I want you guys to know you can't be cursed by that. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, right? So they can't curse you, but you can curse yourself. You guys know that? I mean, in one sense, you can do that to yourself, which is exactly what happened there when you read Numbers 20 through, 22 through 25, and then later on, as the story continues in chapter 26, what ended up happening was uh, Balaam said, well, I can't curse them, but if you just send the ladies down there, have them dress a certain way, dance a certain way, woo the men a certain way, they'll fall into sexual immorality, spiritual adultery, and in the end, what they'll do is they'll curse themselves. And that's exactly what happened. And you guys remember the story there? 24,000 men died because they fell into sexual sin, right? And so God says, I don't want these people to be hanging out in your life. There needs to be a healthy separation. For that reason, God said, stay away. You're not to have them in the assembly, you know, and for us today, you know, we need wisdom, you guys. I mean, I know that you have a heart for the lost, right? You want to go and you want to win people who don't know the Lord. And so how will they, you know, come to Christ if you can't go into their, you know, place, uh, uh, their, you know, home? Maybe they'll invite you to their, their birthday party or maybe it's somebody that you work with and they say, hey, let's have lunch. It's another guy and you're, you know, wanting to win them to the Lord. I mean, I understand that kind of stuff. And so... It's hard sometimes, you know? We've got to know that we're in the world, but we have to make sure that we're not of the world, that we don't compromise. You know, another thing is in the church, uh, what happens is sometimes churches, they, you know, they, they don't deal with sin. You know, they allow sin in the seats uh, among the saints. They don't preach against it. They don't practice any type of church discipline whatsoever. 
And what that does, the Bible says, is allows leaven in the church. And what does the Bible say? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so that's where we need to be careful. You know, for us today, it wouldn't be any specific nation or nationality like the Ammonites or Moabites. You know, for us, the only prohibition from anyone being allowed in the assembly is someone who calls themselves Christians and yet is living in blatant, die-cast rebellion to God. And I'm not talking about somebody who stumbles, because we all stumble. Everyone here uh, sins, I think, every day. Anyone here didn't sin today? Raise your hand, because we're going to prove you a liar right now. <laughs> We, we all fall short, right? But, you know, when there's, there are those that come in and they don't want anything to do with the Lord, they don't want to get right, they don't want Jesus Christ, they want nothing to do with Him, they're going to come in, sometimes they're wolves. God says, that's the, that's, those are the ones that you, as a pastor, you as a leadership, you as a church, you got to deal with those things. And so, you know, you approach them. Matthew 18 talks about, you know, and hey, I love you, you shouldn't be... You know, you know, doing crack, or hey, I love you, you shouldn't be in sexual sin, let's get right, let's move forward in our relationship with God. And if they don't want to get right, it's then that you have to deal with them according to the scriptures. You know, in a lot of churches today, they don't preach about sin, they don't do anything to deal with it, practice no church discipline, and that's why they find themselves in a bad place. Vance Havner said, today the world has so infiltrated the church that we are, more, we are more best by traitors than by foes without. Satan is not fighting churches. He is joining them. We are more beat by traitors. And so, you know, we see that problem there in the assembly of God. And then, secondly, we see problems in God's house and the house of God. Look at verse 4. It says, now before this, Eliashib, the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king. And I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. And then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms, and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. And so it's still dealing with principles of separation. You know, in this case, what was going on, think about it, how crazy it is. In the temple of God, this enemy of God was living there, Tobiah. He was a clear-cut enemy of God in the house of God. You know, and that happens, huh? I, I would imagine probably in every church uh, you're going to have, uh, you know, enemies. So what did the Bible say? Jesus said they planted the tares among the wheat, huh? And it was weird, last night, I don't know if it was last night or this morning, 
I had a dream. And, you know, I'll just share this with you real quick. It's not really the substance of the message, but it was, uh, it was the enemy. I saw literally snakes in the house of God. And so I woke up, and this morning I was studying this out. I'm like, whoa, it's, it happens in every church, doesn't it, Lord? You know, there was that one time where Jesus went in the synagogue. There was a man possessed by, by demons. And so the Lord, you know, delivered him from that. You know, we're not afraid of them, but we got to know the reality of it. We have to have discernment. We have to be in prayer. We have to be constantly knowing that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly place. Here we have Tobiah living in God's house. Now, it's interesting how he hooks up, though, with the people of God. We saw back in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 10, that this guy Eliashib, mentioned in verse 4, was the descendant of Jeshua, which meant that he, this guy, was the high priest back then. He specifically called that in verse 28 of this chapter. And yet here he is, think about it, the high priest harboring a vowed enemy of God, an Ammonite named Tobiah. For those of you guys who have read Nehemiah, you've read his name, his name Tobiah over and over and over again. He was totally against God, totally against God and the people of God. You know, it says right here, however, that Eliashib, notice in verse 4, that he was allied with Tobiah. The Hebrew word allied is usually translated near. It's also translated neighbor. And so in the context right here, it basically means that these two guys were tight. They were tight. You know, and sometimes you see that in the church. You know, you got a key figure. You got a pillar. You got an overseer. You got someone in the church, and you know, God's using them. And it could be anybody, man. And it's like, man, what in the world? Why in the world are you tight with someone who hates us, who wants nothing more but to bring this congregation down? Well, that, that's exactly what's happening right here with, with Eliashib, man. I mean, the high priest of God is tight with the enemy of God, someone who would want nothing other than for the work of God to fail. You know, be careful, you guys. I'm telling you, there needs to be a healthy separation from, you know, those, and you've got to use some spiritual discernment that you, be, you don't belong talking to them. You shouldn't be communicating with them because all they want to do is destroy you. You see, Tobiah was bad news. We read about him throughout the book in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10. It says that they were deeply disturbed that someone had come to seek the well-being of Israel. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 3, they mocked the work. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 7, they were angry that the work was growing forward. In Nehemiah chapter 6, they, they opposed him to the point that they wanted to frighten him so that the work would cease. All they wanted was for the work of God to end, and here he is living in the temple. You know, we read in verse 5 here that Eliashib hooked him up, and he had prepared a large room for him to live in, a room that was supposed to be used to store the tithes and offerings, the first fruits from the people, according to chapter 12, verse 44. This way, as the people would provide for the priests, they could devote themselves to the work of the ministry, and then the people would be blessed, God would be glorified, it would be an amazing work that God would do. This is the way that he set it up. And they had agreed to that back in Nehemiah chapter 10, but now 
they go back on their word, even though they had said, if you look Nehemiah chapter 10, look at verse 39. It said, and we will not neglect the house of our God. And so it brings us to our second point, principles that are so important for us as Christians, as believers of God. Number one, there needs to be a healthy separation between you and the ways of the world, between you and people that you know you should not be hanging out with. And then secondly, after separation, is that, that word support. You know, and you got to bring in the tithes and offerings. You know, for us as Christians, even myself as a, as a pastor, i got to give to God what belongs to God for the work of the ministry. And maybe you don't have a lot of money, that's okay, you know? You, the Lord knows, remember the widow, all she gave was a mite? Remember that? The Lord was just so blessed by that, you know? It's not necessarily the amount that you give, it's the amount of sacrifice that you give, right? And so, you know, for us, maybe it's prayer. The best thing you could do for us as a church and for the church as a whole, remember, we're not just praying for Calvary Chapel, we're praying for the church is pray. Pray for me. I, I need it desperately. Pray for our leaders. Pray for our pastors. Pray for our overseers. Pray for those in the congregation that are being specifically targeted by the enemy. That type of support is what we need so that the house of God would not be neglected. Unfortunately, they came to a place where they were no longer you know, giving support. Uh, it wasn't even an issue for Eliashib, the high priest, the room that was supposed to hold all the grain and offerings and first fruits, he took it all out and he gave it to this guy, uh, Tobiah, man. It's just crazy when you read what ends up happening when there is not the presence of a godly leader. And then that's what happened. When Nehemiah left, you read about that there in verse 6, while he was gone, there was no presence you know, I don't know if this is exactly how they say it, but isn't it, they say something like, when the cat's away, the mice will play? Something like that, right? <laughs> you know, and it's not that, you know, Nehemiah was, um, you know, type A personality, and, you know, he had all the, the, the leadership gifts, although I do think that was cultivated within his life. To me, the most important thing is that he loved the Lord. And he loved the people of the Lord. He was a godly leader because he was a godly man. The other day I was listening to an interview by a pastor whose God is using in such a great way in the church today. And he was just saying, the main thing for me, to be honest with you, the main thing for me is that I stay close to Jesus. And that's the key. I mean, you can read books by whoever it is on leadership, and praise God for that. You know, there are principalities and principles that we'll learn tonight. But, you know, main thing is, is you've got to have to have godly relationship. You have to stay close to the Lord. And as a result of that, when you're there, and I'm talking about you fathers, you husbands, you leaders where you work or of ministries, whatever the, the leadership role is, not just guys, sometimes gals, you don't realize what an influence you are. That when you're there because you love God, I mean, it just, it kind of like holds things together. And when you're not when you're not leading, when you're not being that husband, that dad, or whatever it might be, then everything falls apart. 
you know, Nehemiah here, when he leaves, everything falls apart. He comes back. And again, you know, I know everybody has to make their decisions. And who knows, maybe it was a superficial type of, you know, obedience that came subsequent to his return. But I tell you what, man, God used him in a mighty way. Just like God wants to use us. We're talking about this class. It's called Servant Leaders for a reason. The same pastor that I was talking about, I was listening to the interview the other day, and he talked about how when he first started in the ministry, that he wanted to get involved, and so he went up to Pastor Chuck, and he said, hey, Pastor Chuck, I want to get involved in ministry. And so Pastor Chuck said, okay, go see Romaine. So he went to go see Romaine. You guys remember Romaine was his assistant, and uh, Romaine said, okay, here's a broom. <laughs> you know, here's a, here's a uh, you, why don't you clean toilets? Well, I want to teach. I tell you what, you know, and he was talking about how, how in the, the church that he pastors, all those guys, they got raised up from the bottom. And that's good. Because as a leader, you have to learn to serve. You have to learn to serve. And so here's, uh, you know, Nehemiah, and it's such a great example for us, as a leader, God would use him, but man, he had such a servant's heart. You know, and, and as he leaves, the people, unfortunately, let the fire die. They uh, definitely proved to us the need for strong leadership, the type that Nehemiah would provide, without which they would have this tendency to stray. And that's what the Bible says about us, right? In Isaiah 53, 6, we kind of have a tendency to stray, just like the sheep do. It's for that reason a lot of people pray Psalm 119, 176. It says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. You know, maybe you're here tonight and you've gone astray, you know, and uh, you're, you're, the enemy's trying to beat you up. And that's not my intention by any means. I want you guys to know that just like Nehemiah brought them back, God can bring you back. It's so cool to know that that's the God that we serve, that he seeks us. And oftentimes he uses caring and even daring men like Nehemiah. You know, when Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem, he discovered that evil Eliashib had done this work. And so we read here in verse 8 that it grieved him bitterly. So he was devastated. He was brokenhearted. He was upset. And so what did he do? He gave Tobiah a 60-day notice. He said, okay, you got to leave in 60 days. No, that's not what he did, huh? What did he do? He threw him out. He just threw him out right there and then, huh? And I don't know about you, but when I read that, of him just throwing everything out, it reminds me of Jesus driving out the money changers from the temple, huh? You know, it's that type of, uh, sometimes that passion that leaders need to have, Right? You know, it's interesting, just in case you think Nehemiah was wrong in doing this, archaeological findings, this is an archaeological finding, revealed that Tobiah was from a wealthy Ammonite family and that he wanted to rule because archaeologists have discovered a palace, a fortress, just east of Judah from the same century. And the fortress that's built there has his name on it inscribed at the entrance and so unable to gather control of Jerusalem, undoubtedly that was his heart. I want to get this for myself. Tobiah and his family eventually carved out land holdings and political power in Ammon just east 
of the Jordan. And so, thank God, you know, that they kicked him out. <laughs> Secondly, in this house right here, not only was Tobiah in the house, the Levites were not in the house. And that's not a good thing. There was an absolute, complete breakdown of leadership. You know, given the fact that the people seemed to be responding to the leadership of Nehemiah, now, you know, they're doing all these things, right? In verse uh, 10, he said, I also realized that the portion of the Levites had not been given them for each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So the Levites are supposed to be there, supposed to be supported. When it's happening, they go back to their field. They start working. And so look what he did in verse 11. I contended with the rulers and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. In other words, he put them back in the positions that belonged in and then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse Shelemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe and the Levites. Pedaiah next to them was Hanan the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah. Why? For they were considered faithful and their task was to distribute to their brethren. And so there's a problem in the assembly of God there's a problem now in the house of God. Tobiah is there and the Levites aren't. And so what does Nehemiah do? He sets it back the way it's supposed to. And what do the people do? Right away they start giving. Right away they start submitting. Right away they start yielding. And so what does that tell us? It tells us it wasn't really a problem with the people as much as it was a problem with the leaders. Now they got leadership. Now they're doing the right thing, right? And what we find right here is that these Levites were supposed to be supported by the people. Move next to the problem with the Sabbath. And so again, three principles, right? Separation, support, and then the Sabbath. And so Nehemiah prays in verse 14, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. We're going to see Nehemiah praise frequently. I don't think it's necessarily because he wants a reward. I think it's just because he wants the Lord to work, right? And so in those days, he says in verse 15, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day in which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre, now we're talking real commercial businesses, dwelt there also who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. And then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, what evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And, and at the end of the day, you guys, here's the thing. It always goes back to what? To, way, to the way they violated God's word. I mean, you know, it's not that they didn't know what it said, not that they didn't know what it meant. It's just that they continued to go 
against the word of God. And they figured, well, I'll survive the day. I guess I can do it in another day. And then that day turns into a week and then a month. And next thing you know, God's long-suffering is being taken you know, for granted. And then one day, you know, the judgment came. Here we see that they were violating the Sabbath. And in this right here, it's sad, you guys, how the world will work so hard to make more and more money. Did you guys notice that the world is never satisfied? The more money you get, what ends up happening? The more you want, the more worries you have, man. You know, that's the backdrop to what we see here. And it's for that re reason Nehemiah contends with the nobles. Apparently, they were the ones profiting from the violation of God's Sabbath law. Notice in verse 17 that he contended with the nobles. In verse 11, he contended with the rulers. And just as a, a warning, you guys, um, too many times it's money that moves us and not God, right? Especially in the United States of America. Uh, Lana Turner, uh, maybe you've heard of her. I think she's an actress. And she said, a successful man is one who makes more money than his wife can spend. And then he said, a successful woman is one who can find such a man. That's their philosophy, right? You guys ever heard of that guy Warren Buffett? Uh, he said, he said uh, they, they say, um, Warren Buffett, a man they say who is worth $73 billion. What would you do if you had that much money? Crazy, right? This is what he said. He said, rule number one, never lose money. Rule number two, never forget rule number one. That's his philosophy. <laughs> you know, most of us, I think, know better, right? But we have a hard time doing better. Benjamin Franklin said, money has never made man happy, nor will it ever make man happy. There is nothing in its nature to produce happiness. And yet, the more of it one has, the more of it one wants. And therein lies the problem, really. We have a hard time just resting and seeking the Lord, our Creator, with a heart of contentment. And here they are on the Sabbath day. What do they want? They want to make more money, right? Money makes people do things they would never do. Uh, recently, there was a game show getting ready to start up. I don't know if it's still on the, on the works, but the premise of it would be, what would you be willing to do for money that would get people to tune in? And so they asked the question, and they surveyed a whole bunch of people, what would you be willing to do for whatever amount of money, you know, something crazy, right, so that people would watch? And you guys have to admit, if you saw that, if you knew that show was on, you'd probably watch it. This is our wicked nature, the way we are. But, you know, a lot of things, I, a lot of things I can't read to you, but there was a few uh, that I probably can. For $2,500, a man said he would eat two dogs of canned food, and if he threw up afterwards, he'd give half the money back. And so that's probably not too bad, huh? But for $25,000, a man said he'd allow them to tattoo anything they wanted on his forehead. I thought that was interesting. Here's one for $20,000. A gal said she'd allow them to amputate her little finger in order to pay off her credit cards. And so I don't want to tell you some of the other things that they said, but I'm just telling you this, that people will do anything for money, huh? That money moves people out of the will of God oftentimes, which is exactly what we see happened here. In this case, they were willing to violate God's law to make more money, even though this was one of the main reasons they had gotten into trouble with God to begin with. 
Uh, notice there again in verse 18, did not your fathers do thus and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city, yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And when you cross-reference Jeremiah 17, 19 through 26, or Leviticus 26, 27 through 35, what you find is that God actually sent them into captivity for 70 years because of the fact that they didn't allow the land to rest for that amount of time. You read that in 2 Chronicles 36, 21. And so for us, let me ask you guys a question. Do we have a Sabbath day? Does that have anything to do with us? Uh, after church service, there was a guy that came up and he asked that question about the Sabbath day. And I took him over to Colossians 2, verse 16 and Romans 14, verse 5. It says, let no one judge you regarding Sabbath. We don't have the Sabbath the way that they do, right? They had to do it. It was their law. It was their civil. It was the civil law of Israel. But for us, uh, it's not a command repeated in the New Testament. All of their Ten Commandments are, nine of the ten are. That one's not. That one is tweaked a little bit, though. And what we find, you guys, for us as Christians, is you don't have to celebrate the Sabbath, um, but you can. And I think it's a good idea. How many of you here like rest? Just out of curiosity. It's good for you, you know? Um, we have to be careful that we're not working seven days a week, you know? We have to be careful that we get that time off. You know, for most of us here, I think we can make Sunday our Sabbath if we wanted to. You know, but a lot of times we don't. We're like, oh, okay, I'm going to go to church on Sunday morning, and then afterwards I'm going to go home, and I'm going to work, 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 work. And I suppose if you have no other, day, no other day to do those things, mow the lawn, wash the car, do all that kind of stuff, wash the cat, that's fine. You can do that on Sunday, but... Warren Wiersbe is so cool, man. That guy is filled with so much wisdom. He said, you know what? I made a, a rule or a conviction in my family that Sunday's going to be a Sabbath day. And if there was any other day that we could do that work, we would do it on those days. Sundays, we go to church service. Sunday, we seek the Lord. Sunday, we get rest. Sunday night, we go back to church service. That was his heart. That was his conviction. You know, maybe you have to work on Sundays. God knows that, and that's okay. Romans 14, 5 says one person picks that day, another picks, person picks that day, that each one be fully convinced in his own heart. But Nehemiah here, when he saw what they were doing, uh, God bless you, he was a TCOB guy. He took care of business. Look at what he does. Look at verse 19. And so it was... At the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. <laughs> From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy." 
he, he, didn't, he wasn't a passive leader, huh? He was wise. He knew he'd been given not just authority, but a responsibility to exercise that authority. And so he was both commanding and demanding. I, I, I think I see that in this guy. He had to be. Shut the gates. Set the guards. The guards that I choose. And we're not just going to be defensive here. We're going to get offensive. Not simply you know, a reactive type of leadership, but a proactive type of leadership, right? I mean, think about that. If, you don't, if you're here, I'm going to lay hands on you. Think about that. I mean, this guy, he didn't mess around, right? And so, um, the, more problems. Look at verse 23. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one of the other or the other people. So how are they going to read the Bible if they don't know Hebrew? You know, because statistics tell us that the kids are going to learn the language of the mom. And so here they are. They don't even know the Hebrew language. And so I contended with them, he says in verse 25, and cursed them, struck some of them. Think about this. Pulled out their hair. And made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? I mean, they had married non-believers. You know, for us, you know, we have the scripture over in 2 Corinthians and talks about how we are not to be unequally yoked. In 1 Corinthians 6, 14, and through, all the way through 7, 1, I encourage you guys to read that through. And it comes back to that principle of a healthy separation. Okay, if you're here today and you're single, you know, and I understand that you want to get married, and that's cool, man, that's okay, it's a natural desire. I beg you, I beg you with all my heart by the mercies of Jesus Christ that you would wait for a Christian. You would wait for a Christian. That you, I don't care what, what kind of ha- car he drives. Like, oh, but he's got a Camaro. It's a brand new one. And, you know, I got in a Camaro the other day, and I'm like, man, this is like Batman car. This is kind of cool, you know? And, you know, you're like, I like his car, or I like his biceps, or he makes a lot of money, or whatever, you know? He's got the dimples, and it doesn't matter. You know, he says he's a Christian. It doesn't even matter if he says he's a Christian. You got to know, is there fruit in his life? I mean, is there, like, no shadow of a doubt? that he's a Christian or she's a Christian. It's then that you're free to go forward because if not, you're unequally yoked. You have no fellowship. And what ended up happening with Solomon, here's a man who had all the wisdom there was to offer from God himself. Pagan women turned even his heart away from the Lord. And so we have to be so careful in these things, you guys. Wait on the Lord you're like, ah, but I'm already 23, you know, and I'm running out of time. And God's like, you know what, it, do, it doesn't matter. I, I, I knew this one guy, he waited, and I, and I don't want to depress you or anything, but he waited until he's 50. You're like, oh, I can't wait that long. I've seen others not wait on the Lord, 
And I'm telling you, they just messed up their life. Messed up their life. You guys, wait on the Lord. You know, right here when Nehemiah, uh, when he contends with them, notice again in verse 25, he cursed them, he struck some of them. You know, he probably slapped them. You know, pulled out their hair. And, and you know, we don't do that nowadays just to let you know, okay? <laughs> I was talking, however, to a brother earlier today, and he was telling me... Um, about how he set, you know, how he sets his brother straight, you know, and he's, he gets, you know, a little firm with him, and praise God for that, you know. In the New Testament, um, the Bible says that the servant of the Lord is supposed to be gentle, so for us as pastors, we would never do this to you, and if anyone ever said, well, I'm going to do this to you because the Bible says Nehemiah did, just tell them, no, that's not the way it works, okay. But uh, we do need to be slapped around a little bit, huh? And not, not physically, okay? <laughs> but spiritually, I think we need sometimes that intensity. And uh, I don't know. Uh, the Bible talks about how sometimes some servants will not be corrected by mere words. And that's talking about just like, you know, just little nice, soft words. No, that sometimes they need a, a, a trancaso a little more, right? In different ways, Right? And so in this case, in Ezra's case, they kind of had to separate from their wife. Here, in Nehemiah's case, all they had to do was promise never to do it again. And then we close in verse 28. It says, And one of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I drove him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And thus I cleansed them of everything pagan. I also assigned duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service, and to bringing the wood offering and the first fruits at appointed times. And then he closes the book by simply praying, Remember me, O oh my God, for good. And Nehemiah seven times, you know, just over and over again. We saw, first of all, he prayed for an extended period, four months, right? Fasting, praying, seeking God, showing us how to pray. And then after that, he would just send up, uh, they call it telegraph prayers, man, real quick. And God did a good work. And that's probably one of the main reasons that God used his life in such a tremendous way. So many things I want to share with you, but we're out of time. And I can hear your stomachs are grumbling for in and out. So do me a favor, get me one, animal style. <laughs> and you guys, let's, let's, uh, let's learn from this, though, man. Let's learn to be leaders. Let's learn uh, to catch that vision that God has for, you know, uh, the people that are hurting, the walls that are broken down. You know, God wants to use our life. And, uh, and as far as, uh, you know, a pastor goes, assistant pastors, leaders, men in the church, women in the church, I tell you what, we don't have enough godly leaders. And so maybe you can rise up and catch this vision and be a leader like Nehemiah was. And where are we leading people? We're leading them to Jesus Christ, right? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one that died on that cross for us. And so make sure you guys know that this is all about him. And at the end of the day, that's the one, he's the one that we want you to run to. Okay, what does the Bible say? John the Baptist, he was just a point man, right? Even though he himself was probably pretty cool. I can't wait to meet John, you know, when I get to heaven, man, because he was kind of crazy, you know? But, but 
all he did was point people to Jesus, right? And that's what we want to do tonight. Especially if you don't know the Lord or maybe you drifted away. I pray that today would be the day that you would receive him as Lord and Savior. You let him call the shots in your life and that you would admit you're a sinner in need of a Savior, knowing that he died for you and rose again. And as you place your faith in him, that you will find life.